Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. My name is Paul Favor. I'm here with my ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. Today is Friday, the 2nd of December, 2022. And uh, today's special guest is Lieutenant Colonel Gene Klon, a retired Army officer uh, with 26 years of exemplary service from the jungles of Vietnam to the sands of Iraq and finally to NATO uh, in Europe. Uh, he's also the author of numerous books on leadership, which is what we're hoping to talk about today. He's also uh, has a brand new book. It's called The Iconic Warrior, uh, which is the first book uh, of a series of books that we are pleased to have with uh, Blacksmith Publishing. So, uh, Colonel, welcome, welcome, oh, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, the. Exciting thing that, uh, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about with sure. you. you. You have so much experience. Uh, but one thing that I personally wanted to, sure. to know, uh, and uh, really is, you have this new book. Right. It's called The Iconic Warrior. Right. And what was your desire to do that? What, why, what made you want to make a, and create this book? What All was right. the impetus behind it? Good, good question. So the uh, Iconic Warrior book is about a teenager, John Paul DeBear, fictional character, and uh, it takes him, uh, it's a foundational idea about him that takes him from a green teen to a seasoned combat veteran. It's a, a transition about his journey to become a, a great warrior. Ever since he was like, say, five years old, his vision was to become a great uh, soldier and a great battlefield warrior. And that, uh, the impetus for that was, um, he visited his uh, grandfather in France, who was at that time 90 years old, and his grandfather, this is in 1885, his grandfather was a, a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars and had actually served for three years in Napoleon's Grand Army from 1812 in Russia to 1815 in Waterloo. And the entire time that five-year-old John Paul was sitting on his knee listening to his war stories, um, he, he got inspired and so the grandfather said to him at the end, he prophesied over him, John Paul, I was a good soldier, you're going to be a great soldier. And so that was the impetus at five years old. From that point on, John Paul wanted to be a great warrior. So he spent his whole life studying, reading, and thinking about battlefield uh, exploits. And so, okay, so then in 1898, he was 18 years old, and uh, the Spanish-American War took place. And so this was his time. He signed up for the Army. He signed up for the 1st Volunteer Cavalry, the Rough Riders, with Teddy Roosevelt. And this was his, as a Screaming Eagle would say, his rendezvous with destiny. So the book takes him, uh, this iconic warrior book, the first um, volume, takes him from when he joins the service uh, to his preparation, his training, his deployment. And actually, the book ends the night before his big battle. And the whole time, he's talking to veterans, what it's like to be in combat, um, He's thinking about whether or not he's going to measure up. And to him, it's his whole life dream, his goal, 
is to be a great battlefield warrior, and that's what he's about to um, face. So, wow. uh, yeah, so that's the idea. So, you know, um, so battlefield. It's a, Go yeah, ahead. It's, sorry. So it's got um, the, the idea is historic fiction. Exactly. So uh, J.P. DeBear is a fictional character. Uh, he's a fictional guy, but all of the history uh, is real. It is. In so fact, when you read this, you, you're being immersed in American history, European history, all that awesomeness. So correct. I mean, I, and the book is awesome, but I think uh, that is just worth uh, stating the obvious. Sure. Yeah. In fact, I, I followed the um, Teddy Roosevelt wrote a book called The Rough Riders, and I followed his book religiously, and I put John Paul in all the situations, to all the battles, and even to the end of the, end of the war. And so, um, whereas the, uh, John Paul is a fictional character, and some of his exploits are fictional, but the reality is uh, the, the whole flow of the events is actually quite accurate. Yeah, so something that's interesting is, and I'll just... Uh, uh, let myself out of the closet in a sense here. Don't don't worry, I'm not going anywhere, anywhere weird. But uh, you know, ever since I was a kid, Pinelander exclusive. I, I always <laughs> thought, man, it would be awesome if I could be born like uh, you know 1920. Sure. You know that way I could get World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Yep. Assuming I wouldn't be killed in one of these battles and campaigns and all that. Because of just the you know the how awesome that would be to right. experience all the, the history that I know so well, or I think I know, and so uh, not to be Freud, but it seems like that's what you've kind of done with JP. Absolutely, uh, you've you've uh, that's your persona of you know you really if you could live yeah, sure. all of that you would do it. I mean, and not to discredit your own career, which is awesome, oh. all on its own. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, awesome. you you had to start somewhere and. I'm assuming you started where you started for a reason. Sure. Well, between 1898 and 1902, the United States Army had four small wars. First of all, it was the Spanish-American War in Cuba. So John Paul is in all these, by the way. Yeah. Spanish-American War, uh, Spanish War in Cuba. Then he and his sidekick, his best buddy, his, uh, nickname is, his best buddy's nickname is Three Ring because he used to work in the circus and did acrobatics, so he's Three Ring. So when they uh, muster out of the... Um, First volunteer cavalry, they go to the reenlistment guy and they say, what do you got for us? Is there anything else? Because they both enjoyed their military experience at that point. They said, what else you got? And so the reenlistment guy says, well, we got some problems with the uh, Chippewa Ojibwe's in Minnesota. The federal government is screwing them over. Of course, they, you know, I know that's a surprise. And so there's a little <laughs> uprising going on there. So anyway, uh, John Paul and Turing reenlist. And they end up in Fort Snelling, Minnesota. And one week later, they're in a firefight. With, uh, and actually, that was a firefight where the um, Native Indians um, had no casualties, and the American Army had 21 casualties. And so it was, uh, and anyway, John Paul gets uh, shot in the leg and almost bleeds out and has a little fling with uh, his nurse. And anyway, um, that's, in a follow, that's actually in volume two, but... That's to get the female readers, I'm sure. I, all, I have female <laughs> interest in all the books, like in this book... Uh, there's a German girl that's interested in John Paul, and she's teaching him German, and he's teaching her French, and uh, his John Paul's real girlfriend calls her Flirty Birdie. Okay, fine. And then, uh, he, anyway, there's other gals that show up in this book because there's always some, and uh, by the way, my wife read all these books, so they're all in the up and up, so it's not like there's any, anyway, make a long story interesting, uh, then 
the Philippine insurrection took place because we got uh, the Philippine islands from Spain as a result of the war, and the Filipinos had a rebellion going on, and they were almost in a, about to throw the Spanish out themselves. So we defeated the Spanish, Spanish left, and then the, the Filipinos thought that they were going to get their independence, but it, we became the colonial power. So they started rebelling against us. And so John Paul is involved in that. And then uh, while that's going on, the, uh, the legation, the uh, embassies in Beijing, China, were surrounded by the boxers, which was a, a, a martial group because they, the, the, the um, martial arts that they were practicing, they got the nickname boxers. Uh, they, they thought that all the uh, problems that China was having in terms of uh, starvation and bad crops and so forth was because of the demon Westerners, so they were going to get rid of them. So they surrounded the legations where all the embassies were in Beijing. And so eight countries, eight Western countries, to include the United States, sent forces there to lift the siege. And there was a movie about that, the 55 days at Beijing. Anyway, so John Paul is involved in that. So... When the smoke all cleared between 19, uh, sorry, 1898 and 1902, uh, John Paul has been invo was involved in like four conflicts. And so the whole idea about John Paul is uh, to become a, a great combat warrior. So the idea of being in combat. And so, um, and I talk about his feelings and his thoughts and the smells and uh, just, uh, and, and he always does uh, little AARs on himself too. Frederick the Great said that um, experience without reflection is worthless. So the idea is he goes through this and he thinks, okay, what did I do? How did I do? What can I do better? And um, so anyway, uh, he learns and he's always learning. You know, I, I know it's a cliche to say lifelong learner, but that's kind of who he is. And so um, that's kind of where that, that's from. But I was going to go, the go unexamined life's not worth living. I know Good. Frederick the Great got it from that. There's something else that's awesome about your uh, writing is not only his uh, desire to be in the, the fray sure. and uh, to be, uh, you know, in, in a combat, but it's also under the undercurrent is a uh, desire to serve, right. the duty, a duty on our country. And something you mentioned uh we're talking about last week sure is uh really what the, the warrior class uh does and that is it uh preserves the safety right. security and uh survival of the state sure and so i think uh something i picked up on on, on what jp is learning from his ncos and right. his commanders and and those others he's bumping into is this is what being a warrior is all about right uh it's about he's learning uh, what it means to serve and uh, to serve with distinction. And uh, I think uh, that is definitely something that needs, we need a lot of young people need to return to anyway. No, that's excellent. Yeah. The, um, the, the, one of the core notions of the whole book is to, uh, it's kind of like um, leader development, and in this case, yeah. combat leader development. Yeah. You know, um, I actually earned a PhD in my dissertation. It was a 485-page work. And uh, the, the topic was uh, leadership development and developing combat leaders. Mm -hmm. Because I've always been really interested in that topic. Because when I was in the Army, I commanded five times, right? And so I was always, uh, to me, it was always a challenge and actually initially a mystery as how do you take a group of people and... Uh, put them on a battlefield where they could uh, face death and serious injury, like any second, right? And so um, how do you prepare them for that Pre preparation? How do you get them ready, the whole idea of readiness? 
and what kind of a spirit do you instill in them so that when you say, follow me, like the famous Fort Benning statue, and that's actually patterned after Red Aubrey uh, Newman, the guy at the, it was a poster that the Army had from the Philippine Islands, follow me. Anyway, when you say, follow me, that there's actually somebody behind you, right? That's so right. how do you motivate people, right? So that, that to me, uh, because war is the most difficult thing that human beings can face, and even worse above that is how do you train leaders to function in that, where you have to um, be responsible for people's lives, but also accomplishing the mission. So you have to have your whole faculties together to do that. And so, so how do you train yourself? How do you train your folks to be ready and to do that? So to me, that was always the, the special challenge. And um, so, okay, and you look at, okay, good leadership, of course, that's important, good training. Training said uh, soldiers must train for war. Everything else is bullcrap. Of course, he's used a different word than bullcrap, but I can't use that, use that here in polite company. But uh, Rommel said the best welfare of the troops is first-class training. So training, obviously, is important. Uh, you know, maintenance, uh, high standards, sound discipline. The Roman army had the uh, best discipline of any army in the world ever. They always defeated... Um, you know, hordes of barbarians that were larger than they were, but because they were disciplined, they actually overcame them. And where that all fell apart was during, uh, I guess it was 375 A.D., uh, Emperor Gratian said, uh, I don't think you have to wear your, your helmets or your breastplates anymore because the soldiers complained about it. It was too heavy. And after that, that was the beginning and the end, right? That was everything. They started being defeated badly. But the whole point about it is, all right, so how do you uh, take these people and put them on the battlefield so they can function. Because as, as you just mentioned, Paul, the, um, you know, there's more at stake here just in the lives of the people on the battlefield. We're talking about the military is responsible for the survival, security, and uh, safety of the state, right? And if the military fails, the state's in serious trouble. For example, after World War I, the German Empire, Russian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Austrian Empire, they, they're... They all lost the war. Their militaries failed. And if you look at the political, social, and economic chaos that took place after that in all those countries, you know, revolutions, uh, street battles, starvation, it was terrible. And if you look at the, uh, the American South, the Confederate Army lost the war, right? And it, it took decades before they recovered from that. And some people say the South never recovered from that totally. So the idea the Army has a, um, a big place to play in the, um, in the future of, of the nation. And, uh, you know, we're a constitutional republic. So we don't have, you know, like a monarchy, you know, counts and countesses and dukes and duchesses. But we have soldiers. And in my world, the nobility and the aristocracy of a constitutional republic, a democracy, are its soldiers. Because they're the ones that preserve everything we have. The warrior class. That's couldn't, it. Couldn't have been said better. There's a, there's a couple things that, come to mind and, and why I think the uh, the iconic warrior series is so timely one is just the history of it I mean I I have an 11 year old daughter and sure. she struggles in history sure um, to me this is the best way to teach history because it is such an interesting story if you can put the if you can make a story out of out of real historical events it's really the best way to teach in a right. lot of, a lot of ways so um, you know, you're gonna learn. You're gonna learn a, a just a huge amount of just valuable history by by 
read by your style um, in these books. But I think the other part that right now, obviously, is the elephant in the room is there's a lot of people that are noticing a leadership void today right. in the armed forces. And I think you talked about the fact that the challenges that JP is going through has got to provide lessons and hopefully folks that want to assume leadership and, and step up are going to learn from these these books. They're going to sure. learn from JP's experiences uh, and be able to apply them. Because I, I agree with you 100%. The warrior class is, is crucial for the survival of this republic. Sure. No, that's excellent. The, um, you know, I... Um... I was always a reader. Um, I'm a big fan of military history. You know, like I said, you can develop combat leaders, you know, the training and, uh, and, and high standards and discipline and so forth. But uh, one of the things that I found in my preparation for myself to lead people in combat was the study of military history. And, uh, you know, you'd say, um, well, I've got a couple of notes here I'd just like to share. Uh, Field Marshal uh, Moltke, Helmut Moltke, he was the uh, chief of staff and the commanding general of the German army for 30 years, and he was responsible for the three victories in 1864 against the Danes, 1866 against the Austrians, and 1877 against the French. And this is what he said. He said that history is the most effective means of teaching war in peacetime. Yeah? And uh, Germany, the strategist, He's uh, quoted as saying that military history accompanied by sound analysis, sound analysis is indeed the true school of war. And Clausewitz, the greatest military theorist ever, said that, the only, that only the study of military history is capable of giving those who have no experience of their own a clear picture of what I call the friction and fog of war. So, you know, I studied history, and I thought that was actually uh, really key for me in my, uh, in, when I was in the Gulf War, uh, two of my soldiers were wounded, but they all came home alive, so which is pretty cool. And, um, yeah, so the study of military history is uh, pretty, uh, really important in terms of um, developing combat leaders. Now, one could say, okay, you're saying, Gene, military history, right? Well, isn't that antiquated thinking? Because, you know, what is the Battle of Waterloo and the Battle of Gettysburg and the Alamo got to do with our society today, our war today, when you have, you know, Tomahawk missiles and um, Javelin anti-tank rockets and drones and laser-guided missiles and IEDs, what does that got to do with it? Well, when I'm saying military history, what I'm talking about is studying military leaders, generals, commanders, heroes, listen, in terms of their character, you know, what their uh, qualities, attributes, and traits are, were, uh, how they led, how they took care of the troops or didn't, um, how they made decisions, uh, their judgments, what they based their judgments on, you know, who they relied on, who they didn't rely on, and just the whole persona, the personality of great leaders. Because when you're studying, uh, uh, say, okay, Waterloo, you're studying uh, Napoleon and Wellington. When you're studying um, Gettysburg, you're studying Lee and Meade. When you're studying the Alamo, it's Santa Ana and Jim Bowie, Davy Crockett, and you know Colonel Travis. You know you're you're studying those people, and um, it's and you not only and when you study uh, military history and, and leaders, you're not just studying the good leaders. There was uh, an 1836 Texas Revolution. There was um, a colonel named Fannin, and 
he had spent one year at West Point, but anyway, he was assigned. He's got was in charge of three hundred uh, Texas militiamen. And Sam Houston, his KISS commander, says, Fannin, come and join me immediately. Well, he marched out of his, his post, and he got cold feet, and he marched back in. Two days later, Santa Ana surrounded him. You ready for this? And then he took the 300 guys as prisoners, and he massacred all of them, shot them all, killed them all, to include Fannin. And the reason I tell you that, there was a, when I read that all, there was a phrase that just uh, was really struck me. It said, Fannin's spirit dissolved in the face of decision. His spirit dissolved in the face of decision. All right. So how do you have to prepare yourself physically, mentally, psychologically, and emotionally so that when you are facing combat, that not only do you function properly, you can think? You know, when somebody's trying to kill you, that kind of affects your thought process, right? And so, you know, can you think? And then when it's all over that you don't come home with PTSD and commit suicide, okay? So th that's actually part of my writings, too. That I actually have a, uh, some thoughts about um, how you prepare yourself uh, and others so that the impact of, um, of combat is not so... Uh, because, you know, you see some things. Some people are in a car accident, and uh, they uh, you know, see some bad things in that car accident, and they're in therapy the rest of their life. Well... Some GIs, they see, you know, like in Vietnam, you never were taken off the line, right? The enlisted soldiers, I mean, the officers got rotated out every six months, but the enlisted guys, they were on the line the whole time, right? So after a year, you go back to the States, you know, look, let's adjust back to, you know, normal life, you know, work on the farmer in the factory, right? Yeah. So anyway, there's some, so I have some thoughts about that in there too, but the whole notion of my writing is to, um, because I had a lot of really good experience when I was in the Army. I really did. And uh, I also, uh, like I said, I mentioned before we started here, uh, leaders are readers and readers are leaders. I always read because to me, you know, when you're in the Army, right, and you're in peacetime, because I, I came back from Vietnam in 1970 and I didn't go to the Persian Gulf War until 1990. So that was 20 years, right? So how do you, see, how do you keep your uh, cutting edge? How do you keep your, your warrior spirit? And how do you, you know, instill that in others when you go through the, the grinding monotony of, you know, garrison and, boring than dull nature of you know you run around in your little pt shorts and you do some you know motor stables and pull some dick steps dipsticks and it's just awful so what you have to do is you know to keep yourself sharp you study military history and you keep the vision going you keep the keep this you know the the, the thing burning in your chest that okay this is what i'm looking for there was a um author his name was lewis simpson he was a he did poetry and um prose and actually, he got a Pulitzer Prize for a, a poem. But this is his story. He uh, was in 101st Airborne, and he was in. Uh, he jumped in Normandy and in, um, in Arnhem, Market Garden, and he was in Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge. And he said the aim of military training is not to prepare soldiers for, for war, but to make them long for it. In other words, that they. Well, there's a, there's a good hua in the Marine Corps. That's kind of, uh, the Marines really kind of uh, do that. And so that may be a stretch, but I, I like it. I, th I always thought that was good. And uh, in 1970, the movie Patton won the Academy Award. George C. Scott played Patton, and his daughter watched the movie, and Patton's real daughter watched the movie and says, yep, that's Dad. Anyway, he was, I think, the greatest combat commander that the United States ever produced, and uh, 
he would study military history at 2 o'clock in the morning. He would read books. In fact, his, he had to have special ointments for his eyes because he read so much. And when he, uh, he passed away, his uh, family gave uh, his library, his books, to the West Point Library. And in all his books, it goes back to the Punic Wars and the Peloponnesian Wars, he would write in the margins, ah, that's not right, this is nonsense, this is good. No, I, I, would, I would do that. I know he should have done this. He wrote in all his books, right? And so um, the idea of uh, studying military history, I think, is, um, is pretty key to the whole process of uh, becoming uh, a good combat leader. And uh, sorry, yeah, that, yeah, that made a, uh, something that uh, I learned this. Uh, and for, if you guys have heard the story uh, already, sorry, uh, but I haven't lost my mind. Uh, but I just wanted to bring out this example. Uh, you know, I was probably 17 years in the Army before I started to do what you're saying. Right. You know, I was just that uh, knuckle-dragging, you know, NCO that just like, hey, I'm learning, the, you know, whatever I need to learn, and I'm just making it happen, right? Well, um, you know, I was promoted to, uh, you know, Master Sergeant, and I was given a position sure. uh, of a lot uh, increased responsibility, and it dawned on me that I didn't know anything, and I needed to become a Renaissance man, and something that I learned and uh, just uh, I was just reminded of as you were talking is uh, not only do you become a disciple of war. Right. Okay. We, we become disciples of war. We learn war. Uh, and it's for a purpose of, uh, of what you've just said before to defend you know, as guardians of the republic. Sure. But also this, that you, you live out what you believe. Right. So you, you, uh, you, ha- you develop a theoretical experience of these combat uh, ordeals and bloody business you read about in the books. And then in your mind, you have a framework. Right. When you're, as you said with Patton, when faced with a similar situation, at least you have an idea of how you would do that and, and actually be faced with that uh, decision so that your spirit doesn't dissolve. That's right. Uh, in, in the midst of the decision. Yeah. Right. You know, um, after the war, he said, that he never faced one situation in, in the war that he hadn't taught, thought through, pick a number, five or six or seven or eight times before the war, before, before it even occurred. You know, he, um, you know he, he, he would read military history, you know, say the Peloponnesian Wars and so forth, with, with such intensity, and he would put himself into the situation to the point where he, he, had, he actually thought that he was reincarnated. He, he could put himself in the sight, sounds, and smells and I was there. That's it. That was the one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. and one of the most amazing, uh, amazing scenes in that Patton movie was uh, he came upon a battlefield where the previous night there had been a big battle. And yeah, stop the jeep. <laughs> anyway, he, yeah, he, he he interviewed um, he interviewed a captain, and uh, captain told him it was it had been hand to hand fighting and so forth. And anyway, uh, when it was all over. Um, Patton looked around the battlefield and he said, I love it. I love it so. God help me, I love it so. I love it more than my life. Now, okay, that may be a stretch. That's not necessarily what I'm promoting here, but the, that's the idea that uh, you don't shun away from your responsibilities because the thing is, you're defending the Republic and, and nobody else is going to do it unless people in the uniform do it. And I'm talking about warriors in uniform, not civilians. You know, we have people that wear a uniform and that's all fine. You know, but they're really uh, nothing more than civilians in uniform. But, you know, we're talking about creating warriors, people that are living in, like John Paul, that's who he ultimately, he wanted to be a great battlefield warrior, right? So that was the idea with him. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that really, as they say, sounds a clarion call. Uh, when I put my finger on the pulse of society right now and I see uh, the sag in the recruitment, right? Uh, when you see just a kind of a dip in the patriotism and, and why would you do that? I mean, when I joined in 88, uh, yeah, everybody wanted to go you know, be the first kid on the block with a confirmed kill and all those good things. And now it's like, why would you do that? You know, why would you? Why would you even serve because of other reasons that uh, as a society changes? But yeah, the what a what a time that we need to circle the wagons and go back to one just one other point here I, before I forget this because I, I think I'm becoming like I'm having a Joe Biden day. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're doing uh, good. Sorry, but uh, I was thinking about this today, and, right. and uh, as you're talking, is uh, what we often say in Land Nav. You know, if you become lost, what do you do? You go back to your known point. Right. Good. So as we are like just floundering in some sense, it's time to go back to first principles. It's time to go back to the fundamentals, uh, go back to these uh, these books, dust them off and, uh, you know, warm up those pages. Right. And, and uh, learn from the past so we don't recreate uh, the failures and all those good things. But, uh, you know, what a time for us to do that. And, and our country needs uh, good leaders. Right. Bad Good warriors, man. Well, no, I was just going to say, you you brought up something that I I hadn't really even thought about, which was, uh, we've talked about post-traumatic stress on, you know, the podcast before. We've had some excellent guests um, that have talked about it, but I, not until we really, we were talking about Patton and reading and Mm -hmm. the importance of studying history. Sure. Did I even consider the fact that that is really mental preparation, I Mm -hmm. think, um, a defensive mental preparation for preventative medicine, if you will, sure. for post-traumatic stress. I didn't even think about the fact that studying these battles and studying the experiences that uh, past warriors had been through um, can is really just developing that 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 mindset for what you're getting ready to go into. Eventually, I mean, we're all going to see war. We, we I was in the military the same time you were, sir. Sure. I mean, it was a long period of pos- uh, peace and prosperity but we knew at some time or another that was not going to last i mean sometime or another um you're gonna have to get out there and, and sure. mix it up so um i think you brought up a great point uh both you and paul really about the the, the importance of reading and, and prepping uh, prepping the, the uh sure. mind and the, and the spirit and and, right. and really just uh, uh keeping you from suffering later right right yeah when i go ahead and get depressed about uh i would read uh carlo desk's Patton, genius at war. That would always inspire me because Patton's my guy. In fact, that's why I wear that's why I wear a pinky ring because <laughs> Patton wore a pinky ring. Patton, Patton said, "Was a warrior's warrior." Patton said, "If you couldn't swear three minutes in a row and not repeat yourself, you weren't really a man." I didn't. Uh, well, back before I got saved, <laughs> back, back before I got saved, I could probably do that pretty well. But after my conversion, I I, I, I kind of took a step back here. But I got to share a couple more things here. Uh, you use a, a magic word, mindset. That's what we're creating. A warrior has a mindset, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the way you look at life, the way he or she looks at life, that's uh, that, that mindset, that attitude about it, that um, I look forward to, uh, to do these things and showing what I can do. Because we look at that, you know, we look at, we say professionals, they're doctors and lawyers and dentists. Well, the point is, we talk about military professionals. These are people that are cut above their... Um, they operate at a higher standard, at a higher level, at a higher level of excellence and efficiency 
than normal person. And so that's what I'm uh, suggesting here for a warrior. But I got to make one qualification too. You know, people would say, Klon, you're, pro you're pro promoting uh, militarism. I said, no, I'm not. What I'm promoting is, uh, we're not talking about creating warriors like uh, Till the Hun or Genghis Khan or Tamerlane. I mean, Tamerlane was the, probably the biggest criminal. He made Hitler and Stalin look like a punk man because um, he would send his, uh, they'd, uh, he had his empire from Cairo to Delhi in India and he died going into China. And uh, he would send his soldiers in a city and say, bring back two heads. And if you don't bring back two heads, your head's going to... And he would create pyramids of heads. I mean, this guy was just a, a, a criminal. In one, one city, there were 3,000 uh, people there. He said, I won't kill you. I mean, I won't, you know. So he buried him alive. So he, no, he didn't kill him, I guess. But anyway, so we're not uh, talking about creating uh, people like that. But we're talking about uh, in the tradition and history of our Constitutional Republic, we had some great, what I would call, warriors in the past. George Washington, uh, Andrew Jackson, Winfield Scott, um, Sherman Grant and Sheridan, um, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Pershing, uh, Matthew Ridgway, who essentially uh, kept us from losing the Korean War. And uh, even in a, in a more modern day, Petraeus and McChrystal, I put them all in the warrior class. And so what I'm talking about here is... Um, developing leaders that are standing on the shoulders of the great leaders of our nation in the past. And uh, these are, you use the word, Paul, uh, Renaissance people. These are people, okay, these are people that can think. You know, there's, um, we have the principles of war, you know? And there's nine principles of war. And I'm going to try it. And we used to use the acronym OO some mess. So offensive, um, uh, surprise, unity, of command, um, maneuver, mass, uh, economy of force, uh, security, simplicity, and uh, let's see, I might have missed one there. But anyway, so that's the idea. And so the, um, you know, those principles of war, now listen, they, they stay the same throughout history. What changes is how they're applied to a given situation. Like how, how they might be applied to, say, Iwo Jima or Bastogne or Vietnam is different than how they would be applied in uh, you know, Fallujah or Mosul or uh, Kabul, right? So Patton said that uh, the principles never change, uh, but how they're applied, they change. So what does that mean? That means that uh, officers, these warriors, they have to think. They have to be able to look at a situation and say, okay, in this situation... Uh, these are some options here, and um, you know, compared to what could be done, okay, this is, they have to be able to think through that. So what I'm promoting here is the idea through the reading, and John Paul does this a lot with his reading and studying, is that um, he, people are able to think at a situation and not just be, you know, uh, you know hairy, knuckle-dragging, kind of belching <laughs> gorilla kind of uh, leader, that they're actually a, a refined person, and so... Uh, one of the things that um, I, I'm promoting is the idea that uh, there's a that the combat warrior is a, is balanced, and he or she is just as comfortable at an embassy lawn party as he or she would be in the trenches or a knife fight in the elevator. Right? That's the kind of person we're talking about here. That um, that has the uh, emotional stability and the intellect intellect to look at a situation and say. In this situation, we have to do this, and then when the situation 
occurs and it doesn't go right, which it won't, you know, if you go in a war, that everything changes the first time a fire, a gun, you know, gunfire occurs, that they're able to uh, adapt, adapt and adjust to the situation. So that's kind of the kind of person that I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's, you know, combat in wars is is really the extremes. I mean, um, you have the extreme good that you, that that you can experience in war. Sure, uh, tremendous you know acts of valor and bravery that we see on the battlefield. People get medals for it. Sure, uh, for rising above doing things that are you know considered almost extra human. Um, but you also have the bad, uh, and you talked about that with some of these. Uh, you know, past military leaders that do atrocious crimes. Sure. Um, and you're right. What we're trying to do, I think, for warriors is the person that, that comes out, for lack of a better example, as, as, you know, the quintessential Jedi warrior. I mean, he, he doesn't go to the dark side. Right. Um, he knows how to handle himself um, in that very extreme environment. Sure. And I think I think that's yeah. um, I think that's what these books do. Um, I think that I think that's what JP is trying to um, as he's going through these series, that's what he's doing. He's he's in training. He's he's trying to, as he's getting, um, uh, put through these environments. Sure, he's negotiating that and trying to make sense of it and figuring out what right and wrong is in that environment. Right. Uh, there's something also that's beautiful uh, in the reading is there. You have various uh, components. Now you have a historical component and a philosophical component, and there's a a theological component, mm. and I think it's really important as, as a deep, rich theological co- component of your writing, and we know that uh, theology is the application of uh, God's Word to all areas sure. of life, uh, as uh, John Frame says, uh, but that's true, and you have, uh, the book is saturated with the Word of God, and, right. and how he lives out, so you live out what you believe, and so JP is living that out. He, he's uh I raise that because it's crucial. Yeah, these days you have you can have highly trained pagans. Oh, sure. You can go yeah. through all of the training, and I've you've probably rubbed elbows with them. Uh, and I've been through some amazing schools, some of the best training you can get in our army. Sure. And but the guy has he wasn't raised right. He's got an integrity problem, and eventually it comes up. And eventually it always comes it up. Does. You know, God makes his rounds. It comes yeah. out. And the guy is uh, outed as who he is, and he's dismissed. Uh, but the uh, the interesting thing about this, and I know what you're doing, okay, <laughs> I'm on to you, is you're trying, you want to inculcate uh, and pay out this truth that sure. he is living out. And it's God and country. It's truth. And I think we really need that. Right. Uh, these, and here's a, a shorter uh, diatribe. But often you go through the law of armed conflict briefings, and they say, hey, well, this is how we do it. This is just how we do it. Well, you know, the law is not made. It's found, right. as Cicero said. So our laws, they're all, they all come from the Word of God. Right. They all come from the Bible. So the, if you look at the foundation of our entire country, I would argue it's the Bible, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that is the foundation of everything we believe. Right. And that is what, if you wring that book out, you get it. Right. You get that. And it's so important that uh, the whole, here's my ax I'm trying to grind. Sure. Is 
what how more how much more would we need that today i mean how badly right. we need that to to return to those uh, first principles right so I, I applaud that aspect that component of not only war fighting and the philosophy and all these awesome things but uh to to have um a sacred honor that's anchored in the word of god right that's so important that's good um I made my character uh, a Jesuit, and um, what he he's, uh, he went to twelve years of Jesuit school. In fact, his father is French, came to the United States, uh, and he's a civilian missionary at teaching at a Jesuit school in upstate New York, and he's teaching with other Jesuit fathers. Now, uh, and the reason I made him a Jesuit was for for a reason. Uh, there was a good reason for that. You know, the Jesuits, uh, Loyola, Ignatius Loyola. He was wounded seriously in a battle, almost lost his leg, lost his life, and he had a big religious conversion while he was uh, recuperating. He said it was like being struck with lightning. Anyway, he created the Society of Jesus, which is called the Jesuits. And I'm going to tell you, these are some serious gentlemen there. They're serious guys because uh, they're called God's Marines. They're really good at education, uh, and that's where you know, they got this Jesuit mission school that John Paul had attended and his father teaches at in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, that 28 universities now in the United, right now in the United States are Jesuit universities like Georgetown, Fordham, Creighton, uh, Boston College, and the four Loyolas, they're all Jesuit schools. But also they had a really a strong mission sensing. Mm. You know, they would, um, in, in the, let's see, it was in the uh, 1600s that um, Japan was closed to Christianity. So the Jesuits said, you know what, we're going to send missionaries there. All right, they go there and they'd be killed. The, the missionaries would be killed. So word go out, you know, we need more missionaries. They'd be lining up. They'd be lining up. So anyway, the reason I tell you that is John Paul has a real strong Christian faith-based value system, right? And that is what forms him and his character. Now, he's got all kinds of opportunities, and I put him in the book for fornication, and, you know, of course, he does drink wine and smoke a cigar, and that's all good, (laughs) never to excess. But the bottom line is, he, he uh, never uses foul language. Well, every now and again, he comes in a situation where... But anyway, the bottom line is he's, uh, he, he operates off of his value system, and that's his character. His, and, you know, character is defined as your, your inner traits, qualities, and, and attitudes, and uh, who you are, how you make decisions, you know, and uh, how you see right and wrong, and how you make moral decisions. And so that's what John Paul is, and uh, he faces all kinds of dilemmas and difficult... Uh, things that he must take care of, and um, he, you can always, he's consistent. See, he's consistent, and I think that's part of... Uh, and not perfect. Well, yeah, yeah. He, he's got a real problem with anger yeah. because, you know, he's part French. His mom was um, uh, one-quarter um, American Indian, Chacopat Chaka tribe, and so, um, and he's also Roman Catholic, and in those days, he lived in a Protestant community. Yeah, he, he suffered, uh, he fought bias against him and because of his French background, because most everybody else was uh, English or Irish, and uh, they were Protestants, so he took some grief about his religion. And so he always got angry when he felt he was uh, being uh, treated dismissively. And um, so, and plus he sometimes has trouble keeping his mouth shut. (laughs) He's a really extrovert and outgoing, and sometimes he's talking when he should be listening and so forth. So those are issues that, as I work through the series, you know, we work, you know, he's always, there's a character development there where he's always trying to get, uh, improve uh, how he's, his behavior in those areas. 
Yeah, I also like that about uh, – I can't remember who said it. I think it's at some point, you know, you, you say something, you think, uh, is that me or is that somebody else? Right. I know that happens to anybody that reads, and that's okay. Uh, but uh, what I remember is uh, I don't like to be around people that say, I've arrived. No. You know, I've arrived. You know, I did this, <laughs> that, and the other, and I'm done now. And now I've got these laurels, and I'm sitting on them, whatever it is. Uh. And, and nobody likes to be around that guy. And so that's it is refreshing to see uh, the guy is learning. Right. And it's so one of the good cool things about it is as you read uh, your your book, you 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 kind of grow along with this guy as mm-hmm. these uh, these great life lessons are paid out from these various people. That's and uh, so you can kind of learn along with him on that. And then, uh, but the other thing I wanted to get out too is. Sure. Uh, you said this, and I, I think we've we beat this, but I don't think you can ever beat this too much so it becomes a dead horse. Is you said we stand on the shoulders of uh, these greats, right? And and uh, something I remember, another thing I remember, somebody said, and I think it might have, I can't remember who it was. Whoever you are out there, thank you. Uh, but you stand on the shoulders of those greats, and and when you do, you look further afield than they did. Right. So it's like you're taking all of their experiences and lessons right. and you're saying, hey, those are good enough and I'll take them to myself. And then that way you're that much farther along. And I think uh, the wise man truly gets that. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, that's why they say, um, you know, the, the wise only learn from the experience of fools. That's good. So yeah, every time I think that uh, it's, a, it's a trove for us to always go back to. And find a little bit more. Something else that uh, I wanted to make sure we get out of this too sure. is, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about leadership. Sure. And uh, you know, we, uh, you know, the principles of leadership. And I just wanted to know if there was something that uh, that really just stood out. Is uh, maybe not from the principles of leadership, but any leadership gems, axioms, something that really comes out in that book. Well, the. Um you know the, the the whole notion of leadership is, uh, you know, you have one human being that the synonym for leadership is influence. So one human yeah. being influences another uh, their behavior. Okay, so that to me is, um, in, you know, in the whole notion of leading in combat. You know, how do you do that? How do you do that uh, so that people re- respond to you and you respond to your leadership? I said earlier when they say you say follow me that there's actually somebody back in back behind you so the um i've studied that and uh this is what i considered you know maslow uh abraham maslow i think it was in 1943 he did his hierarchy of needs remember that maslow's hierarchy sure. of needs yeah so the the ba- basic one is physiological you know food shelter sleep uh restrooms that kind of thing the second is safety and security now listen the third one is um there's different words for it, but it's uh, affection and affiliation. And what that is is people always want to be connected with something bigger than themselves, like a good military unit or their Green Bay Packer fans or you know they wear their company T-shirt. They're affiliated with something bigger than themselves. But they also want to, and I'm going to use this word, they want to be loved, okay? And, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul in that love chapter in First um, Corinthians 13, First Corinthians 13, 8, it says, love never fails. So I actually wrote an article uh, for the Center for Creative Leadership magazine, and I said, Maslow got it wrong. No. The highest human need 
his what he lists as his third need. People want to be they want to uh, appreciate be appreciated, have affection, be paid attention to, be acknowledged, you know, be applauded. Um, they they want that more than anything. And um, if you give that to people, and I'm saying this in terms of leadership, you take care of folks. And I'm going to use these words: um, dignity, respect, caring, concern. You you treat people like that, and they will respond to you to the point where they may even uh, risk their life for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the um, I know in the in Vietnam, if you were <coughs> you didn't have to go out in the field. If you only had like four or five, five days left in country. And your unit was going to go on a sweep or a combat assault. You wouldn't have to go out. But you know, invariably, the soldiers who were like within three or four days or four days, whatever, of leaving country, they'd go out anyway, and they risk life and limb. Why? Because their aff- affiliation was with their team or their squad or company, whatever. And uh, that's they were their mates. They were their soul buddies, right? They were their band of brothers. And in, in the last year, they uh, they trusted them for with your life or with they trusted them with their life, and they trusted you with their lives. And so, yeah, so you spent a few days with them uh, at the end because that was that's how important they were. People would actually risk their risk their life uh, because that was so important. So that's what I did in that article. You know, I said, okay, Maslow, uh, you know, I appreciate what you said. Obviously, people need um, sleep and so forth, but people will sacrifice that for a period of time uh, for the, that greatest human need. And not, not only is it important that people receive that because that's what they really desire above everything. But you also, if you give that, if you treat people with affection and appreciation and attention, uh, that they will, uh, you'll feel better about yourself. You know, that's also uh, not just a need for the others, but by you giving that, you know, that verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life, gave. So you give that, appreciation and affection, that servant kind of leadership, and people, uh, you'll feel better about yourself, and people will respond. So you ask about leadership, to me, what I just shared is, the, to me, the fundamental notion of leadership. I said to you, I commanded five times. Okay. Well, one of my commands, I think that I was one of the few white people in that, in that unit. I think the, like, uh, well over eight, almost 90% were, uh, were, were people of color, blacks, browns, and tans. And there was all kinds of racial friction and tension going on on our post. So when the smoke all cleared and I got my efficiency report, it said, Klan's unit was an island of racial harmony in a sea of racial chaos. And the, the whole thing was, I treat everybody with respect and dignity, ki- kindness and courtesy. I'd go and see how everybody was doing. If anybody had an issue, you know, that was in my position, in my, based on my command position to take care of, I'd take care of it for them. I played basketball on the company team. I was the only white guy. And you know, we, everything, we all got along fine. And that's because of how those people were being treated. And I like to, you know, you know I, I obviously had something to do with that. But so to me, that, that, uh, that whole notion about uh, leadership is uh, because you're dealing with other human beings here, right? Other human beings. And um, that uh, how, how you relate to other people is huge, and I think it goes back to John Paul too. You know, he was a Christian guy, right? So um, he treated, he, he served others, and, and you know, he had a lot of success. My good grief! As I write through his story, you know, uh, on San Juan Heights in Book Two, he actually saved Teddy Roosevelt's life, and 
uh, Teddy Roosevelt promoted him on the spot, and he got a Silver Star citation. And um, and uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was his mentor for the rest of his life. But the bottom line is, it's um, it all comes back to um, you know how you uh, relate to others and treat other people. Okay, so that, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I used all the right words there, but that's the uh, that's the what I'm going to share. It to me is that the fun that's the fundamental notion about leadership. So, so I have a question. Sure, of course. And and we've this topic has has come up on the on the pine as Well, we've talked about um, how social media and connectivity and the internet um, is affecting young people and people in general today. Sure, um, different environment than what I grew up in, uh, but we certainly had more human to human contact when I was growing up, and um, and you got quick feedback if you were messing it up. Sure. Um, is that affecting leadership or is that a challenge now that maybe we didn't have that these young people are having now? Uh, because leadership is very personal. It's very face to face. It's not, you're not going to lead anybody through a text message. Right. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a good question. Um, you know, to me, uh, face face leadership is always the best. And in terms of, uh, see body language and you, you, know, you, you see the, the facial expressions that go along with the tone of voice and so the idea of um, you know, leading people through text messages or I guess you can influence them that way but that's not really leadership. It's kind of like you just put an email together and hit send and you think my I'm a great leader. No you're not. You know, so the uh, I'm going to use your word. It's a challenge because uh, you, you as a leader you almost have to overcome that. You have to overcome that. But I believe the three laws of leadership, wait for it, are communication, communication, communication. And to overcome that, you have to put out the word all the time of what you're thinking, what the vision is, how do you f- think the folks are doing, and uh, you know what we need to adjust. I, when I was a battalion commander in the first Gulf War, we would have a, a staff meeting every night as, we, if, as time and situation uh, allowed. And uh, we'd have, you know, everybody would brief, and, you know, their activities for the day, and... And I'd be the last one to brief. Okay. And I'd uh, give my evaluation of how things are going and uh, what, you know, the mission was, the vision was for the next day or next couple days. And then I would share things that because of my rank and position, I had access to certain information that they didn't. And a lot of it, you know, it's like, you know, was information, you know, about things that were going on in the core and the division. Ready for this? That information that I was sharing with them had absolutely nothing to do with them. But I shared it so that they felt connected, they felt they knew what was going on, they felt part of the team, they felt affiliated, right? I shared that. And so I always had my first sergeants, that the, you know, I had four company commanders, and, and they, the company commanders always bring the first sergeant, so that, that all that information got passed out to all the troops, so everybody felt connected. Because, you know, um, I say about communication, 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 you know, if you have a vision for something, like being a you know, combat unit and being successful, you have to constantly go over that vision because people say, well, I told them once. You know what? It's the three hours. Repeat, repeat, review, and reinforce. You have to go over and over because sometimes people don't get it the first, second, third, fourth time, right? So the idea of, um, to me, to overcome that, uh, I'm not leading anybody. I'm, I'm an individual contributor right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but if I was leading groups, leading people, I would, uh, you know, I'd, I'd communicate what I was thinking, why I was thinking it, 
we know I always tell them, okay, gang, this is what we're going to do here. Okay. This is the plan. And, um, and, uh, and this is why I'm thinking like I am. Now, the thing was, I was always pretty consistent in my leadership. It wasn't like, you know, okay, I checked the polls or I checked the wind. Now the wind was blowing or I checked what the Colonel said. So we're going to make some adjustments. No, I was consistent throughout. And so, uh, that, that also provided an element of security uh, to the folks. And I also found that unless the troops knew what was going on, they'd MSU it. They'd make stuff up. <laughs> and what they'd make up was always worse than reality. I don't care how bad reality was, they'd make, you know, make stuff up. And so um, you know, I would always make sure and uh, I'd always say, you got any questions? There was a guy named David Knorr. He wrote a, uh, he did some amazing research. He's still my colleague from the Center for Leadership back in the day. And uh, he did some amazing research, and I think there's a real moral to this story. He, he uh, interviewed executives in these companies that were going through a, a major organizational change, corporate change. And then five years or so later, he went back and talked to them again. How did it go? Okay. Now, majority of them failed. They did not achieve what they were trying to achieve. And, and there was some that did achieve. And you know what the difference was? Now listen, this is huge. The uh, ones that didn't achieve their goals, they never asked any input from the group, from the, the, from the folks. They asked nothing. They just said, they, you know, they went to the Poconos, had their little senior executive retreat, came back and said, this is what we're going to do. Failed. The, the people that the executives say, okay, this is what we're thinking about doing. We're going to have some changes here. And this is what we're thinking about. We want your input. How do you think? How do you think we should do this? What are your thoughts about the whole process? And what are some good ways, since you guys are working on the line, you know what's going on, how should we do this? Invariably, when you asked th those organizations that asked their folks, their change initiative succeeded. They, they got the, the buy-in, right? They got the buy-in, yes, sir. And the thing was, now listen, even people whose suggestions weren't used just by the fact that they were asked they still supported the changes that came out of the shoot. Now, to me, that's leadership gold right there. That's just, that's, that's huge. yeah, it's the people. You know, how you're treated. Nobody wants to be a castaway. Nobody wants to, oh, they don't care about me. You know, I, uh, when I worked with Malta International, I got out of the Army. You know, when I retired from the Army, I, I, reason I retired because I got this really cool job in Michigan. And uh, I worked for Malta International. And we would ask people when we do our leadership seminars, uh, what's the, What's the, uh, the goal of the organization, the vision of the organization? You know what they answered twice? Common response, I don't know, or to make money. That's not a vision. <laughs> Come on here. Good grief. And so that's why I say communication. People have to know everything, and they have to know how they fit in, how they fit in. Okay, if this is what we're going to do, you know, how do I fit into that? So that, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm actually, um, they, they talk about empowerment. You remember that? That's a kind of a buzzword. I'm not sure how how much it's used anymore, but to empower people to do things. Well, the thing is, if you're going to empower somebody and let them run, run, run loose, they have to know what direction they're running in, what the vision is, what they're running toward. If you don't give them the vision or if you tell, <laughs> don't say, this is kind of what you're supposed to be kind of doing, th there's no telling. You get people running every direction. So the idea of, um, I just think everybody needs to know what's going on. And I would tell them, like, here, when I was a battalion commander, I would say, okay, gang, this is the deal. We're here to prepare for war. That's it. That's, we're, we're an airborne unit at Fort Bragg. We're here to prepare for war. Now, whatever you're doing, you ask yourself, is this preparing me for the battlefield? And if it's not, 
you stop doing it and do something that will prepare you for the battlefield. Now look, we can you know build bridges in Honduras and we can pass out MREs after the hurricane in Florida or we can do peacekeeping in Macedonia. Those are all secondary missions. The primary mission here we are soldiers to prepare for war. That's what we're all about. We're to, for the safety, security, and survival of the state. Very nice. Those are, I think those words will find their way into some books sometime <laughs> in the future. <laughs> I, I think yeah. you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic material. I think, uh, you know, any, any discussion... Not only in your book, your your book is awesome, and I uh, I don't say that just because it's a blacksmith book, but it's one of those books that I wish I could have wrote. You know, when you find those, you go, man, I wish I could have. But then I'd have to be you know your age with all those experiences you have, and so you know, guys that are out there listening, uh, you you can uh, stand on Gene's shoulders and look further afield. So you're going to take all of his experiences that uh, he gained. Uh, all over the world doing all the things that he did. So, um, yeah. I got one more thing I want to share. We yes, talked sir. earlier about uh, John Paul's real strong uh, spiritual, uh, that's what his whole uh, value system is based on. So the night before he deployed and left New York, um, he went with his dad. To, it's a chapter two of this uh, book, Iconic Warrior book. And he went with his dad to a place called the Grotto. It's a little cave where his dad used to go and pray and meditate and, you know, think and so forth so and uh so his dad takes him up there and so his dad kind of does a little laying of hands kind of thing right and so i want to read a short section here from um page 46 he said uh, this is his dad talking to john paul no matter how difficult or hopeless your situation becomes you must rely and trust on the lord for everything and i mean everything the good lord is always with you and loves you unconditionally and promises to help you now listen he will always give you the skills and ability to achieve what you are required to do. That e may even include supernatural skills, extraordinary skills, or miraculous skills well beyond your natural ability. That is who our God is. He is a God of impossible, of wonders, of miracles, and mighty works. And remember, the good Lord is omniscient, means he knows all, omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he's omnipresent, present everywhere at once. Now listen. That means, I'm, that, was, that listen is my words, it's not I'm reading it here. That means he has been on every battlefield in antiquity and knows the words and thoughts of every commander and soldier on each of those ancient battlefields. He has also influenced all those conflicts according to his will. Never forget that he can multiply your ability as a soldier. He can be an incredible resource and comfort for you. See, to me, that's, that's huge. I, I don't want to be so trite to say that the Almighty God is a combat multiplier, but he is a resource with a capital R that uh, any soldier and warrior on the battlefield needs to stay plugged into. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to survive the battle, but when you die, according to Christian theology, you're standing right before him in heaven, so how bad is that either? And there's a, it's kind of a joke, but it's called the um, Atheist Prayer. It goes like this. It goes... Uh, all right, you guys are going to go into combat tomorrow. Um, you got nobody looking out for you. Nobody's going to try to keep you safe. There's nothing to comfort you. You're kind of on your own, and you're kind of screwed. Have a good battle. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'd be putting in my papers to go to a different unit. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, yeah, there, I got a, one more to share. 
there was a sergeant in World War One named Alvin York. He uh, was a real strong spiritual guy. He was kind of a carouser, and then he uh, got a Christian conversion. And so when the war happened, he got draft notice. He got his draft notice, and he put in for a conscientious objector, and it wasn't accepted because his church didn't promote you know conscientious objections. So, okay, fine. So we find he's like a good a good soldier. He goes off to war, and in the Argonne Forest, uh, he, he gets in. A, and actually, I wrote an article about this and had it published one time. He gets involved in a fight and uh, he captures, kills twenty five Germans, captures one hundred and twenty eight, and uh, twenty five machine guns. And uh, General, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Field Marshal Foch, the French commander, said there was the most amazing uh, action by any soldier in the entire war. And he was a—he got all the buttons shot off his uniform, by the way, during that action, right? And um, he felt really guilty about that because he felt that when he went back to Tennessee, his fiance was going to dump him and that uh, the church is going to kick him out. But uh, none of that happened because when he asked him why he did that, he said he had to take lives in order to save lives. But anyway, I say that because, you know, there's people that always say, you know, you can't be a Christian and be in war. Yes, you can. I mean, there's a commandment that says, thou shalt not kill but if you look at the Hebrew word for kill, it's actually murder. Thou shalt not murder. And so uh, and then Apostle Paul in Romans 8 talks about uh, working under the authority of the government where you can bear the sword, which means use force against evil to include in the military. Now, it doesn't mean it should be excessive. It always should be proportionate and measured because David was not allowed to build a temple in the Old Testament because the Lord said he had shed too much blood. So it always needs to be tempered. That's what I'm talking about. What I'm promoting here is the idea that people are, are they think and they look at a situation and, and they're, they're not, it's not, um, uh, my writings are not indoctrination. It's something to, in fact, if someone says, I think that's all nonsense, Gene, I said, fine, okay, let's talk through it. You know, let's do it. But the idea is, um, you know, I want people to, you know, the whole Renaissance kind of idea that they're thinkers and not just robots. Yeah. Okay. Well said. Well, we sure uh, appreciate you being in Pine Land today there, Dr. Klon. This has been an enlightening uh, episode. And we hope uh, you enjoyed today's episode of the Pine Lander Podcast. And if you enjoy our content, we hope that you'll uh, check out our sponsors. Blacksmith Publishing has been serving the warrior class since 2013. We have great titles written by Warriors for Warriors. So if you're looking for a great reference book or maybe one of Dr. Klon's books, uh, head on over to blacksmithpublishing.com. Soft News, providing special operations news from around the world. Uh, go check them out at soft.news. And then if you're looking for some uh, cool Pinelander apparel, head on over to the general store, pinelander1776.com. Interested in helping you develop the, next, the uh, country's next generation of warriors? Uh, consider donating to the American Agogi Project. Uh, we're going to be officially launching that next year in 2023 in celebration of our 10th anniversary. And we appreciate those people that, uh, that are supporting that. Thank you. Until our next meeting, keep your head on a swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. May God continue to bless Pineland.